0: We have lots of texts to look at, and I, I do want to ask you this. I want to ask you if you will um, pass this on to others, because every, every person in our church needs to hear this. Um, it didn't, I didn't get to time it right to do it during one of our worship services, but every, every person in our church needs to hear this. I have a lot to do, so I'm going to jump right in. Let's pray real quick, and we'll, we'll go to it. Our Father, thank you for uh, the wonderful gift of your word, which gives us guidance. We don't have to guess. We don't have to wonder. And we thank you also in particular today for the gift of masculinity and femininity, where a man and a woman combined reflect the glory and the image of God. And this morning, Lord, we consider biblical femininity, and I pray that it would be pleasing to you as we attempt to reflect those parts of your image which are reflected most beautifully in a woman. We thank you, Lord, for your guidance, for your clarity from Scripture that leaves us no room for guessing. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we have lots of texts to look at. We will be in Proverbs 31 in a few minutes. I'm not going to spend a ton of time there. I'll tell you why in a minute. I want to just kind of talk about the idea of feminine first. It's basically become a bad word in our culture. Uh, It's become a negative connotation. It's used often to refer to a weak, um, dependent, fluffy, fragile woman as opposed to a real woman who's strong, independent, and tough. A real woman stands up for her rights while a feminine woman is a disgrace and a throwback to the past. That's what our culture tells us um, today. Feminine is now perceived as demeaning, as inferior, as limiting, as kind of degrading. So the concept of femininity has taken major hits. Just a little history, the contemporary fall of biblical femininity started in the early 60s. A woman by the name of Betty Frieden, or Frieden, depending on who you talk to, she wrote a book called The Feminine Mystique. And far from being biblical in any sense of the word, it was the opposite. She encouraged women to pursue power to be self-actualized and to be happy, that that's where you find happiness is in power. So it created basically a generation of cynical and angry women. Well, a woman who took this to a whole different level and brought it to the popular culture was Gloria Steinem in the 1970s. She started urging a growing audience of middle-class women to leave their homes and to redefine marriage as a partnership between two identical people who split all do these in half, including earning money, taking care of the children, anything you want to think of. That now it's a it's a partnership, and the differences between male and female are minimized. Well, we, we can understand when the culture goes awry. I mean, we get that it always has. There's never in world history outside of outside a biblical faith in God. There's never been a biblical view of women that has overwhelmed. Uh, history. That's why uh, women have been oppressed and beaten and abused and put down and enslaved um, and prostituted all throughout history because of a lack of biblical understanding and a lack of wanting to follow the Lord. So we understand when the world goes out, out to lunch. That's normal. But what has happened that concerns me and the reason I'm so passionate about this and I asked, I want to teach on biblical femininity. Because this self-centered, self-actualization approach has made its way into the church. And for the most part, it's stuck. It is so much a part of our culture that literally every week, there are pastors in America fired for teaching on biblical femininity. They're thrown out. Why? Because they have women elders or they have other pastors who are women who stand up and say no. And so once, once that door's been opened, you can't ever close it again. Now, um, I have been asked this. Why is a man teaching on biblical femininity? Well, I actually want to challenge that question because that question strikes at the very heart of how Christians for the past two two generations have been taught to pursue truth. So I want to have a really long answer to that question before we really get going. I think the mistake is often made of teaching femininity and masculinity. The mistake is made by using our experience... And using our culture to guide us and then we find scriptures to affirm what we instinctively believe already and that's a that's a huge mistake it's dangerous the reason it's dangerous is because then we start inventing new rules for interpreting scripture we start making up new rules to arrive at the conclusion we think scripture ought to come to in fact there's a term for this type of hermeneutic you ready for this that practice is called the hermeneutics of feminism. That it is a hermeneutic based in the idea of reinterpreting scripture in the light of preconceived beliefs and ideals. Feminist hermeneutics is written all over the place in scholarly literature. I mean, it's a huge debate today. Now, I want to give you an example, kind of an extensive one. Proverbs 31 speaks of the excellent wife and mother and the proponents of a Christian woman with children at home having a time-intensive career outside of her home, jump all over a couple of verses. Look with me at verse 16. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. Look at verse 24. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the servant. And our cultural conclusion says, see, the godly woman in Scripture here has a full-time career outside the home. And that's, that's what we're told. But that's a really hasty conclusion. And the hasty student of Scripture didn't answer some important questions. I, the, the very first thing I ever studied deeply as a Christian wasn't theology. It wasn't, um, wasn't even my Bible so much. The very first thing I ever studied was hermeneutics was how to study the Bible. The very first Christian book I ever bought in my life was a book on hermeneutics. And so I'm pretty passionate about this. If you're gonna make a conclusion from scripture, you better give me about 500 compelling reasons that you came to that conclusion because I can give you reasons I came to it. So what I came up with, and I timed this, it took me two and a half minutes. I came up with 16 questions that you have to answer to come to that conclusion from Proverbs 31. And, And you don't have to try and write these down, but here are the 16 questions from hermeneutics. Was this a separate career for idolatrous self-fulfillment or part of a family business on on behalf of her husband? Did she stick her children in daycare while she pursued her personal dreams? How do you reconcile this as an excuse to be away from home all the time when verse 27 says she looks well to the ways of her household? Did her husband have to take care of her responsibilities while she was doing other things? Was she pursuing the welfare of her family or a personal goal? And there's a big difference between those two sixth question did this have any similarity whatsoever to the mom who works 40 50 60 hours outside the home is there a similarity did this impinge on her husband's authority in other words was she challenging his authority how about this issue did another man have authority over her in the workplace which is not biblical by the way how often did she consider a field and buy it was she doing that every day or was that twice a year Did she neglect a frustrated husband for the pursuit of outside interests? And this is question 10.5. Did she create a feminized husband who was doing girly stuff while she went out and did manly stuff? Question 11. Since verse 30 says she's a woman who fears the Lord, then how their outside activities come under that fear of the Lord? Verse 12, does she portray a sense of dissatisfaction with the role of wife and mother? Is she looking for for fulfillment outside of that? 13, is this a picture of a virtuous woman at one point in her life or a virtuous woman over the course of her life? And I think about my favorite aunt of all time, my Aunt Rosalie, who spent her whole young years raising three boys on a farm and that's all she did. She was a full-time mom and she did everything with him. She raised them, she taught them. Then she went back to school and got two degrees in special education and had a 25-year long career in the special education field and won awards all over the state for her work with with special needs kids. She did do it all. She just didn't do it all at the same time. So you have to answer that question. Question 14. Was there any sense in which she created an atmosphere for a lazy husband by performing his role for him. Question 15 Did she take care of all the things on the home front with excellence? And question 16 How does this mesh with other commands and principles in Scripture from Genesis, 1 Corinthians, Song of Solomon, Proverbs, Titus, and 1 Timothy? Now, d- just so you understand the background of what I just did, until the student answers those questions, the student hasn't done proper exegesis of the text. These are questions asked from hermeneutic areas. They're they're specialized areas of contextuality, intertextuality, cultural context, decree of God issues, and eisegesis versus exegesis issues in the text. You don't have to remember any of that. The point is, when Scripture is made to have a result that our culture agrees with, I can guarantee you, you got it wrong. Because our culture does not agree with Scripture. How how about we put it this way? It's not that Scripture affirms what we see in our experience. You ready for this? It is Scripture defines what our experience ought to be. We don't look at experience and say, let's find a Bible verse to back up what I believe. We take the Bible and we adjust our lives accordingly. And I want to talk about that some this morning. So to answer the question, why is a man teaching on biblical femininity Who has God called to inform us of what Scripture says? He's called men to do this. I'm all for women teaching women. Titus 2 affirms this, at least at the mentoring one-on-one level. But if men don't understand biblical femininity, then they're not going to push for it. They're not going to insist on it. God has uniquely called men to give authoritative voice to what the Bible says, That's why a man teaches on biblical femininity. And I think by the time we're done, you're going to see that Scripture knows what it's talking about. Now, as a man, just purely experientially, I can't understand everything there is to know about being a woman. There's no way. I've been married 28 years. I've found out that about the time I think I've got Sylvia figured out, she changes. And I have to redo my thinking. I got, okay, I got her charted out. I have Sylvia defined in an Excel spreadsheet. And then something changes. So... Purely experientially, I can't figure out a woman. But I don't have to. I don't have to. That's like saying that to preach against alcoholism, I need to be an alcoholic. I can understand what Scripture says about being a woman, though, and I can teach it authoritatively, because that's what Paul says to do in Titus. Now, it's very tempting to make Proverbs 31, the example of a godly woman, our primary text. We're going to spend a little time in it, but to be honest with you, in February at the women's retreat, I'm preaching five messages on Proverbs 31. And I don't want to give all the cookies away yet. Um, so if you're a guy, you're out of luck. You'll have to listen uh, online, but for the ladies, we're going to go step by step through this. We will take a little bit of time in it, but not, not a ton. What I want to do with the rest of our time is I want to make this very applicational and informational, but mostly applicational, because if there is ever an area in evangelicalism that needs to be applied to our lives, that needs a complete overhaul, it's the roles of men and women. Now, there there are churches that stand for all the right stuff, but when it comes to biblical femininity, they just say, you know, we're just going to let the ladies take care of that. Wrong. The men should be taking care of that. So thus, I am here having uh, begged uh, to to get to teach on this topic. Our culture is trying desperately to feminize men and masculinize women. And and I know for some of us here, that's uncomfortable even to talk about because you have been, and you don't even realize it, you've been so steeped in our culture that even some of the things I'm going to say over the next 30 minutes are going to be challenging to you and maybe even upsetting to you because you've been so taught. I still remember, even even in my wee early years, in the early 70s, I remember sitting in kindergarten and my teacher, Blessed Mrs. McEwen, I still remember her. She was 209 years old and this sweet little thing with big giant red bouffant. It was like, it looked like a huge red Q-tip. I still remember that and we were sitting on our little rug before nap time, and she said, let's talk about what we want to be when we grow up. And I still remember one little girl saying, I want to be a mommy. And Mrs. McEwen in 1972 saying, no, no, no. Let's be something real. I still remember that. And these little girls, and all of you little girls, were raised to say that the home is second place. So, I want to tell, talk about three actions supported by Scripture in the area of femininity. I don't want to just talk about ideas. I'm mostly speaking to women, but frankly, when the guys in the church don't understand this, then, then things get away from us. Um, I think men need to understand femininity so that they can be more masculine. Now, those two go together. So three actions supported by Scripture. The first action is really more of an attitude. It's a starting place, and that is to honor femininity, to honor femininity. Genesis one twenty seven says that God made male and female in the image of God. They're the same and yet so, so very different. Compositely, men and women are the image of God. The image of God, I think, is best represented by a man and a woman together. Femininity was God's idea. This wasn't some cultural invention. It was God's idea. And everything we try to do to minimize this basically is to worship at the altar of my own desires that I think God was too dumb to figure out gender roles and so I'm gonna refigure it. There was never, ever meant to be competition between men and women. That was never supposed to be. Yes, and we've already acknowledged this, sinful men have treated women terribly throughout the ages, but I think it's important that we acknowledge that roles and differences between men and women, that's not the result of sin the abuse and neglect of the uniqueness of men and women, that's the result of sin. Why have women been taught that true contentment, if you think about this, women have been taught for the last 40 years that true contentment is found in doing what men do. Ironically, that's sort of a slap in the face of women, isn't it? To say, if you want to be happy, you have to be like a man. that That's exactly the opposite of what I believe they would want to say. Why is this the case? Because we have sin natures that demand idols to worship. You know, the stories of how women have been treated over the centuries and millennia are, are countless. They're horrific. But the ill treatment of women by unsaved sinners throughout the ages, that doesn't give men and women a moral right to change God's intended purposes. That doesn't give us a moral right to do that. I've often heard it said that if men would just step up more, um, the women wouldn't have to take over. That sounds true, and there is some truth to that, but there is a lie that's woven into that statement as well. The lie is, is that in the areas of responsibility that God has given men, they've given authority. He's given authority over the home and over the church. The more feminine a woman will be, this is the truth, the more feminine women will be, the more manly men will be. And I, I still remember um, a family I was counseling with and the woman became convinced that it was not her responsibility to provide financially for the family. And uh, the man was, he was panicked because she was 55% of their income. And he worked hard. I mean, man, he worked almost 35 hours a week. And uh, he just really, you know, uh, and he, I understand he was very tired polishing his boat all weekend long and mowing his lawn and all of the six hobbies he had. That was hard for him. I, I know he had a hard life. But she became convinced that it was not her responsibility. It was his. And he, he said, well, that's too bad. You're going to have to submit. And you know what she said? She said, I believe in this area I would be sinning against the Lord. I'm not judging any other woman. But I just need you to know I have given my 30 days notice. This man bawled like a baby in my office. He cried. I thought, I, I wanted to say, why don't you suck your thumb Next. You know what happened though? He had about a week of complete wimp out, and then he manned up, and he started looking for another job, because he needed to provide for his family. So when women are feminine, men become masculine, and thus God is glorified. To dishonor biblical femininity is basically to tell God, you don't know what you're doing. You have no idea what you're doing, that my happiness is more important than what you say I should be doing." Patricia Ennis writes this: "Be women be only women, be real women in obedience to God. So the first action is to honor femininity. To do anything less is to dishonor God. I mean, that's, that's just a fact. Here's a second action. Study femininity. Study femininity. Our culture has tried so hard to brainwash believers into a sinful way of thinking to redefine gender roles and, and thus snub God's created order but scripture is loud and clear on femininity it's it's absolutely everywhere and what I want to do is just take a a really quick tour I just want to show you now I never preach a sermon with 27 points in it but I'm going to try okay this is just a bullet point in Proverbs 31 we're going to start there then we're also going to go through Song of Solomon and I wanted to get to Ruth we're not going to have time for Ruth but just these two books I just want to make the point that to study femininity it's everywhere And I think in the next few minutes, you're going to come to the conclusion, oh, Scripture's pretty clear about this. So Proverbs 31, what I'm going to do is just do what any believer with a Bible can do and just make some basic observations. And we're going to bullet point these fast. Number one, verse 10, an excellent wife who can find she is far more precious than jewels. First observation, she is praiseworthy. She's praiseworthy. In other words, she does things which makes her precious. She doesn't expect to be regarded as special just because she exists. She does things. Verses 11 and 12. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. Verse 23. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Second observation, she is trustworthy. She's trustworthy. She's not sneaky. She's not manipulative. So what we're doing here is building a definition, a long one of biblical femininity. Verse 13, She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She's like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it with the fruit of her hand. She plants a vineyard. Verse 24, She makes linen garments and sells them. Verse 27, Verse 27, She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. What does this mean? She is diligent. She's diligent. Verse 17, she dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She is physical. She doesn't claim to be fragile, but uses whatever strength the Lord gives her to work hard. Uh, My grandmother at the age of 95, if you shook her hand, she would break every bone in your hand she worked on a farm her whole life i mean she was cooking cleaning plowing you name it and she was there for the family business little old thing she was about four foot ten and she was the same width as she was height and and she would come up and she'd say oh and she would just and she loved the lord she'd grab your hand and just have you on the ground she didn't even realize it but she was strong and I remember once accidentally walking in. I was a teenager walking in, and she was in the middle of getting dressed after I got over my, my illness. I, um, I noticed she was wearing this old-fashioned kind of big white thing. I don't even know what it's called. But her, her arms were showing. She looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger. I was like, whoa, Grandma, you're seriously buff. It's because she'd been working. She was physical. She was physical. Verse 18 she perceives that her merchandise is profitable. She is economical. She doesn't waste money. She doesn't send her husband out to earn money and then go spend it frivolously. Second half of verse 18, her lamp does not go out at night. Now, this doesn't mean that she's staying up all night. It means that the lamps that they need to give family light at night don't run out of oil. So our principle is she is responsible. So, so far, she's praiseworthy. She's trustworthy. She's diligent. She's physical. She's economical. She's responsible. She's responsible. Verse 19, she puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. The distaff is part of a spindle that, that makes a thread. She opens her hand to the poor. Verse 20, and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is generous. She's not narcissistic. She's not a drama queen. She's not a diva. She's not one who demands attention on herself. Verse 21. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Verse 27, she looks well to the waist of her household. Again, what does this mean? She is reliable. You can count on her. Verse 25, strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She is dignified. She trusts the Lord, and she does so in a dignified manner. She doesn't fall apart. She trusts the Lord. Verse 26, she opens her mouth with wisdom. She's wise. She's not frivolous and flippant and idiotic. Second half of verse 26, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She's self-controlled. She's not a gossip. She's not constantly jabbering about other people. When she opens her mouth, it is to be kind. Verses 28 and 29, Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. What's this principle? She is a servant to her family. It's what she lives for. Her family isn't blessing her just because of her winning personality. I see that all the time in counseling, by the way. I see women who want to be appreciated by their family just because they exist. And I have seen little children say, well, then do the laundry. And they shouldn't speak disrespectfully like that. And I've seen, this is a real situation, a mom start crying, well, you don't understand how... This is a six-year-old saying, do the laundry. Yet mom wants all these kudos. She wants all the love. She wants all the attention, all the affection, but she didn't do anything. She was lazy. This is a woman in Proverbs 31 who respects and honors her husband in reality, not just in lip service. When a man will publicly say, I exalt my wife there are only two reasons for that the first one is because it's true and she deserves it and the only other reason is because he knows he'll get in trouble if he doesn't those are the only two reasons so you want it to be real verse 30 charm is deceitful and beauty is vain but the woman who fears the lord is to be praised she is devoted to the lord and that's why she does all these things she's devoted to the lord then verse 31 give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates she is rewarded for her faithfulness there's 14 qualities of a of a biblical femininity let's do 13 more turn over to Song of Solomon we're just going to uh, quickly go through this Song of Solomon I don't know if you care I have read Song of Solomon more than any book in the Bible because I am a lousy husband And I need to know, Song of Solomon is written from the perspective of a woman, how I am to be a man, but we learn so much about a woman. What kind of wife is a biblically feminine woman? We're going to plow through this quickly. Chapter 1, verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. She is affectionate. She's affectionate. Chapter 1, verse 5. I am very dark, but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem. And she's talking about the fact that she's been outside working and it's kind of burned her skin. But she is what? She's conscious of her appearance. Chapter one, verse 13. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. She is loyal. She holds her husband to be, in this case, in a special, unique, intimate place. That's an intimate place. She's loyal. Chapter two, verse three. Follow along with me. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. She's complimentary. She's not critical. She compliments him. You are are a wonderful man. And she says in the rest of the verse, With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. In other words, being with him was nice. I appreciate it. Chapter 2, verse 15. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards for our vineyards are in blossom. Now the little foxes here, it's speaking of of conflict. And so she's saying, catch the foxes, get them away from us. What does this mean? She's peaceful. She's not contentious. She is peaceful in the home. The next two verses, chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. My beloved is mine and I am his. He grazes among the lilies until the day breathes and the shadows flee. Turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a stag on cleft mountains. What does this mean? This means she's inviting to him on cleft mountains. That's a really nice way to say, to enjoy my body. She's inviting to him. Skip over to chapter 4, verse 16. The end of verse 16. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. Not only is she inviting to him, verse 16, she's really inviting to him. She makes makes an initiated effort here. Chapter 5, verse 10. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. She is respectful of him. Instead of saying, why can't you be like so-and-so and 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 so-and-so? She says, you're better than 10,000 other men. She's respectful. Chapter six, verses two and three. My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. What is this? She's proud of him. She's proud to say she belongs to him. This is a very poetic way of saying she went to her friends and said, if I can put it this way, guess what we did last night? She's proud of him. She's proud to be associated with him. Chapter 7, verses 11 and 12. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. She's pursuing him. This This is the woman saying, I've arranged for a weekend in the country. And she's very, very interesting here. She said, let's see what happens and she's what she got this guy doing he's pulling suitcases out of the attic left and right he's throwing clothes in saying come on let's go because she pursues him the very next verse the mandrakes give forth fragrance and beside our doors are all choice fruits now let me stop right there in the old testament the mandrake was thought to be something that encouraged sexual intimacy and so she's saying i smell mandrakes do you What is that saying to him? He's saying, let's pack up, get in the car, let's go, we're ready. Second half of the verse, all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. What's this principle? She is creative for him. She's creative. This is well into their married life. Chapter eight, verse one. Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I found you outside, I would kiss you and none would despise me. Now, what is that talking about? In this culture, out in public, you could kiss your brothers all you wanted. Couldn't kiss your husband. So you know what she's saying? She's saying, I wish you were like my brother so I could give you a big old smooch right in the middle of the mall. She is flirtatious. She's flirtatious. And this is after having been married for a long time. And finally, chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, she says to him, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. She's saying, My love for you is like the flame of God. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. You know what she says? You ready for this? She said, if a man came to me and offered me the world, I would not trade him in for you, and in fact, I would tell him to get out. You know what that principle is? She is fiercely devoted to him. Fiercely devoted. All right, let me run through this list, and let's see if we've defined biblical femininity. She is praiseworthy. She is trustworthy. She is diligent. She is physical. She is economical. She is responsible. She is generous. She is reliable. She is dignified. She is wise. She is self-controlled. She is a servant to her family. She is devoted to the Lord. She is rewarded for her actions. She is affectionate. She's conscious of her appearance. She's loyal to her husband. She's complimentary of her husband. She is peaceful with her husband. She's inviting to her husband. She's really inviting to her husband. She's respectful of her husband. She's proud of her husband. She pursues her husband. She's creative for her husband. She's flirtatious with her husband. She's fiercely devoted to her husband. Listen, that's the type of woman that will have men lined up around the block to marry. They will go after her and we didn't even get to the book of Ruth we didn't even get to the New Testament and there's so much here my point is we not only honor femininity but we study femininity I I get this all the time well what does it mean to be a woman okay well it's kind of sad when a man knows more about that than a woman does but it's just simply knowing God's word. This is what defines womanhood. You cannot let our culture define womanhood because our culture didn't invent it. God did. Can't let the culture define it. So we not only honor femininity, but we are to study femininity and the final action supported by scripture. Now that we've honored and studied femininity, we are to prioritize femininity. Prioritize it. If you just learn something today and leave doing nothing, then this was a worthless exercise. Setting priorities involves change. So I want to propose some questions that will derive from Scripture to ask what needs to change. Just five or six questions. What needs to change? What needs to change to be more of a helper? What needs to change to be more of a helper? Genesis 2.18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. A married woman ought to make this her top priority. That's why she was created. The, the ultimate fulfillment is always found in walking in God's intended purpose. When a Christian woman says, well, I need to do something else to be fulfilled, that's code for God is stupid and I'm smarter than he is. If a woman isn't married, that's fine. You'd still make... Um, being a servant and being a helper a priority, you're still made by God to be natural helpers. You're built for this. Second question, what needs to change to be more pure? What needs to change to be more pure? You know, we live in a generation now of the nastiest women on the planet where, where women are taught not only to act like men in the workplace, but to be as vulgar as men in the workplace and to be disgusting just like, just like the rest of the world is. First Peter 3 1 and 2 likewise wives be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives I, I actually knew of an unbelieving man who found this verse and posted it on his wall because he was tired of his believing wife nagging him all the time and he said if you're going to win me do it without words but here's how they do it when they see your respectful and pure conduct First Timothy two nine, likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self control We live in the culture now where women dress for work and they dress for the world the way they should dress in the bedroom, and where they show more skin now than than ever before. Is there a biblical uh, admonition for length of skirt and so forth i 'm not even going down that road the the simple matter is if you're a temptation and you're a distraction according to first Timothy 2 then it's not feminine to me the most feminine thing that a woman can do is to be completely mysterious that every man says i have no idea what's under there and one guy on the earth says i do too bad for the rest of you that's feminine you know, it's ironic too. I've counseled with enough couples where uh, young women and even older women dress like whores out in the world, and in the bedroom, they won't give their husband the time of day. When in fact, it should be the other way around that in the bedroom, they are open and free and willing, and out in the world, they're reserved and they're held back. What needs to change to be more pure? What needs to change to be more gentle? First Peter 3, 4, But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. This is the exact opposite of worldly femininity, isn't it? It's the exact opposite. Abrasive, rude, sharp, aggressive, argumentative, that doesn't describe the godly woman. What describes the godly woman is gentle and tender and soft and calm Fourth question, what needs to change to be more submissive? What needs to change to be more submissive? I I get so tired of the church apologizing for that word. That bothers me because every Christian is to be a submissive Christian. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, submit to Christ. To be quite honest with you, if I just simply, if I had the opportunity to choose which would be the more comfortable safe role i would choose the role of a submissive wife because there's a buffer between me and the lord so to speak the word submissive is not a bad word it's a god it's a word that god invented ephesians 5:22 wives submit to your own husbands as to the lord there's no such thing as a happy unsubmissive wife she doesn't exist how do you know if you need to be more submissive real simple ask your husband It's very simple. And guys, be gentle. Be kind. Here's a fifth question. What needs to change to be more home-based? What needs to change to be more home-based? Titus 2.5, young women are to be working at home, loving their husbands and children. Biblically, the definition of a young woman is with kids at home. It's that simple. If you're 35 and you're done raising your children i hate to tell you this but according to scripture you're not a young woman anymore if you're 64 and you still have kids at home for whatever reason you're a young woman you can say see i'm young the bible says so our culture has vilified the homemaker but god has exalted the homemaker the maker of the home and i would say the young married women and by the way Um, find them in our church young married women and you simply say if you're physically able have babies have babies that's what you're here for make children because i've seen this so many times the longer a young woman waits the more they're tempted to pursue selfish desires for the lie of personal satisfaction and plus who wants to have toddlers when you're 70 i mean nobody wants that I've often been asked, what if I'm not financially able to have children? What what, what if we're just really struggling? There's three words to your husband to solve this. In fact, I'm going to have you help me with this. Three words. Repeat after me. Get, get, another, another job, job. It's that simple. Men need to learn to trust the Lord. And a wife who says, honey, it's up to you. Those men get on their knees. And if I could, I I don't want to be harsh, but I don't mind being direct with men to say that men, you need to trust the Lord, not your wife for financial provision. Get on your knees. When I was in seminary, there was one point at which I was working four jobs just to barely make ends meet and going to school full time and graduating this much shy of a 4.0 because I wanted to be excellent before the Lord. I preached 208 straight Sundays in seminary without a single break because I got paid by the Sunday so guess what I'm showing up with a sermon every Sunday at the places where I was asked to preach I don't hold myself up as a hero at all there are men in this room that are way harder workers than I am but at least do something and the Lord blesses that final question most important one and if you miss everything else don't miss this one what needs to change to be more worshipful what needs to change to be more worshipful Revisiting Proverbs thirty-one thirty, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But the woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. You know what? One of the most precious and important things for me to know about my wife is to know that she's pursuing the Lord. That she is in the Word. That she's in prayer. It, it warms my heart when I see her all the time reading biographies of Christian women. She loves to do that. That's encouraging to her knowing that she's aggressively listening to sermons. You know what a blessing it is to see your own wife taking notes when you're preaching? And when I'm preaching, she says, you're my pastor. That's a that's a blessing to me. What a blessing it is to know that I have a wife who has uh, an advanced degree in education, that she graduated with a 4.0, and she's used that to be at home with our babies and to raise them and to teach them. That's a blessing to me, Because for her, and and she would be embarrassed if she were in here, and I said this in front of her, but for her, everything about being a woman is an act of worship. That's how she views it. That's how she talks about it all the time. So to prioritize femininity, what needs to change to be a helper, to be more pure, to be more gentle, to be more submissive, to be more home-based, and to be more worshipful? I want to just take a couple more minutes and you don't have to turn there but i just want to look briefly at one text in first corinthians 11 and i'm just going to make one point so just listen you don't have to turn there The context of 1 Corinthians 11 is public worship together, the gathering that we have even as we are right now. This is the famous head covering passage. It's hotly debated and you even see there are still churches today where all the women come in with handkerchiefs on their heads because they don't understand the cultural context of 1 Corinthians 11 and God bless them for that. But they're doing an external action that's meant to reflect an internal reality. So ladies, you don't have to go out and buy handkerchiefs. To, without going into it suffice to say that the head covering was a a culturally recognizable sign that the wife was willingly and lovingly placing herself in the feminine position of coming under her husband's authority we have a sign like that today it's called a wedding ring it's similar but it's she's willingly placing herself in that position now remember the context of the verse i'm going to read is public worship 1 Corinthians 11.10, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, meaning in that culture, she does what says, I am submitting to my husband and doing so joyfully and lovingly. That's why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, listen to this, because of the angels. What? Well, that tells us two things. First of all, apparently angels are or can be in attendance at a public place worship gathering of Christians. And that makes total sense to me. That makes total sense. I mean, after all, Hebrews 1.14 says, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? The angels are sent to serve us. We are the redeemed. It would make total sense that they would show up at a worship service. But the second thing it tells us, you ready for this? They care about the conduct of the saints. They care about that. Because angels are the most submissive creatures in the universe. They always conduct themselves with reverent, holy awe before God. They always obey the Lord. They always follow instructions. And it would be offensive to them to see a woman claiming to be a worshiper of God but refusing to practice biblical femininity. It would be offensive to them. My one point from this passage Biblical femininity is not just a role, it's not just a function, it's not just a debate, it's a lifestyle of worship to the Lord. And a woman who says, I am in Christ, but I refuse to be a biblically feminine woman, if a woman continues to push back and rebel and find exemptions and exceptions and excuses, ultimately I would fear the validity of her salvation testimony. But if a woman has been born again, Her heart will yearn to worship the Lord. How? With her femininity. She's saying with her life, as Psalm 115, one says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. And to do anything less is to denigrate the glory of God. So I'm hopeful that in our church, we will continue and begin and push a culture of biblical femininity because it makes men manly and it makes women womanly, if I can use that word, and it makes a church healthy as it ought to be. Let's pray. Look at that. We ended on time. Our Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. It is so abundantly clear. There is no lack of clarity. Lord, I pray for the ladies in our church and I'm fully aware, I'm fully aware that there are women in our church who either they, they have not been taught, they have not been discipled, and that's not their fault. That's just the way it is. Or maybe they've even been misled. And that's, that's on the false teachers. That's on their back. But Lord, I know that there are ladies in our church who need to reconsider their priorities and who need to examine the truths of Scripture and to make some decisions. And I know those are hard. I know those are difficult. I know those are life-changing. I know those are scary I know it takes away cultural idols that we cling to that have given us comfort through the years. But we must lay those idols aside and we must serve only Christ. And so I pray for the courage, Lord, for, for women and men in our church to re-examine this issue and to follow after Christ, to deny self, to take up their cross, and to follow him. Lord, I pray that you would be so gracious and kind to help us to be obedient to you because it is so pleasing to you and because that's the one way you have given us to love you. Our Lord Jesus, you just said so simply on earth that if you love me, obey my commandments. And Holy Spirit, we trust you to bear the fruit of obedience in our lives. I pray it might be so, all for the glory of Christ and so that the glory of God might be lifted up and the the lowliness of mankind might be put down so that you might have your rightful place as God. We pray these things in your name. Amen.